You're listening to the Art of Dying Well podcast, making death and dying something we can all talk about. Hello everyone, James Abbott here and a very warm welcome to the Art of Dying Well podcast, continuing our quest to make death and dying something we can all talk about a little bit more comfortably. Now, on our last podcast, you may remember we spoke to Dr. Catherine Mannix, a palliative and end-of-life care specialist, giving us her take on caring for the sick and dying during the COVID-19 pandemic. That was at the end of April, when fear and anxiety surrounding this new fast-spreading virus was rife. Now, as we emerge from lockdown, we're shifting our focus, not quite to a post-COVID reality, I think we're quite a long way from that, but to an examination of the impact, the impact of lockdown, loss, separation and trauma. So to take this on, we have three really decent guests for you. First up, it's Stephen Ragel, clinical lead at the Centre for Trauma, Resilience and Growth and Veterans Service in Nottingham. Stephen has bags of experience when it comes to trauma counselling and helping people through painful sudden loss. I should actually offer my apologies to Stephen as well for somewhat describing him in a very royal fashion, regal. Um, Apologies for that. We then move on to death chatter, and for that we'll be taking a closer look at the spiritual fallout from COVID-19 with the absolutely delightful Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, Senior Rabbi of the New North London Synagogue. And then, of course, last but by no means least, the voice from the chaplain's chair. And this time round, that's coming from Father James Mackay, an East London Catholic priest who set up a 24-7 chaplaincy system at the Nightingale Hospital at the height of the pandemic. It certainly promises to be a really interesting podcast. Well, I mean, obviously, I hope you agree. So in a rather odd way, I'm going to hand over to myself to introduce Stephen Ragel in the aforementioned Royal Manor. So I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Professor Stephen Regal, clinical lead at the Centre for Trauma, Resilience and Growth and Veterans Service. That's uh, part of the Nottinghamshire NHS Trust and also Nottingham University. And Stephen, you're also, I read, a senior psychosocial mental health practitioner as well as a volunteer for the British Red Cross. You must have seen some sights. Yes, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, the current role is very UK-based. I mean, I have volunteered with the Red Cross for many, many years, but this is a specific UK-based project with the British Red Cross. So I'm part of, um, whilst the title sounds very grand, I'm part of a a small team of um, psychosocial mental health practitioners within the British Red Cross who are dotted all around the country. And uh, it'll be anything from responding to some of the major incidents that we've had in the country. So the Red Cross, I wasn't personally, but I had colleagues who were very closely involved, for example, in supporting survivors and families after Grenfell. And over the last few little year or two, there's been a number of house fires, the floods. So the Red Cross, there's a lot of crisis response work in this country. And I know, of course, you've been involved in um, that aspect of helping people recover after terror attacks, such as the, the London Bridge attack and so forth. And that got me thinking, really, about that subject of sudden, unexpected, sometimes violent loss like that. And with COVID-19 that we talked about on the previous Art of Dying Well podcast, and we wanted to just carry on that theme, of course, because it's in everyone's consciousness still. I hope this isn't too difficult a question, but what, what, what are the sort of fundamental differences in, in the grieving process if you, if you lose someone unexpectedly versus you know, a long-term or a terminal illness where where perhaps you you can at least see it coming to a certain extent? As far as I'm concerned, and I'm only speaking from personal experience in the people that I've seen, when I say uh, traumatic loss, I'm talking about something as sudden, violent, unexpected. Any loss is is traumatic, uh, regardless of whether it could be losing a loved one because they're suffering from a terminal illness, or even something like COVID, for example. The COVID fits into the traumatic loss in the sense of the grieving process and the rituals that come afterwards, which often you'd be able to carry out regardless of the loss. But in terms of your original question, I would see the kind of difference being was that 
I always say that if you have a, a family member or a friend and they're suffering from a long-term illness, it's rather like being on a these trains that go across Canada and you can sit on the, the cars at the front where you can see the landscape around you. You know, so you can see what the topography is like and you can see what the weather is going to be like and you can see things change. Ultimately, you know what's going to happen at the destination. You know what the weather's going to be like, certainly. But you have that sense of expectation. You kind of know what's coming, I guess. With a tr sudden traumatic loss, it's like somebody blindfolding you and throwing you out on a dark, deserted road at night out of the back of a truck and just leaving you. That sense of bewilderment, loneliness, and whether you're an individual or a family, is completely overwhelming for many people. They don't have that ability to see that uh, into the distance. I often say, you know, when I talk to colleagues about how do we support people, is that I'm a passionate believer in early interventions following traumatic experiences. Because I know in our service, we see people far too late, far too late. And consequently, you're often able to do very, very little in terms of making any substantial change to people's lives. The therapist's role with somebody in, with a bereavement of that kind is almost to turn up with the sandwiches, the cagoule, the map. I use this phrase, actually, the Tedeschi and Kaloon, who are psychologists who've done a lot of work in post-traumatic growth. They use this phrase about the expert guide. I would call it the experienced guide, the expert guide. So, you know, I would say to people, look, I think, you know, because we've been travelled down this road before, so let's see where, where we can go. And the, we're going to get lost sometimes and we're going to have to backtrack and we're going to have to just have to deal with some of the new obstacles that we will come up against. But ultimately, we'll get you to that point at the edge of the clearing, you know, where I give you the map and we wave each other goodbye, you know, because it's navigating that course, if you like. And I think if you seek people earlier on, you can prepare them for the obstacles that are to come. Many people who are suddenly and dramatically bereaved, you know, there's, there's some very practical things like how do you access somebody's bank account or money if they have a joint account or you don't have a joint account. Sometimes the person who has died is the buffer between warring parties sometimes in the family or has kept the peace or holds the family together. And that brings up additional stresses, you know. I read somewhere, and I think it's so true, that families can either be healing or pathological, you know, and we've been to enough weddings and funerals to know <laughs> how people respond sometimes, you know. When you have all this, then there are so many challenges for somebody who's traumatically bereaved. And if that person's alone, they don't have family, that makes that journey even more challenging. They don't have that social support. And, and social support, you know, we know from all the research that it's a really important protective factor when people have been through adverse life events and trauma. And if it's not there, then it's almost a predictor of long-term difficulties. It doesn't mean to say that it always will be, but um, and it also doesn't mean to say that if somebody has social support, they're not going to experience difficulties. But then I guess whether you have or fortunate enough to have that support or not, what, what COVID-19 is presenting to us is that disconnection, that, that isolation. So, you know, everyone's experiencing it differently. But I guess sometimes you can't obviously be at the hospital when someone dies. Then you may not be allowed to go to the graveside because of, um, you know, the, the measures in place there to stop the spread of the virus. So is that something that is currently being looked at? Is that something you can counsel people in recovery? That's a really interesting question because I think, for me, I've been asked about this by some really lovely colleagues I have who work in the hospice sector because they were quite concerned about this element of the loss and the bereavement process. It suddenly occurred to me, it's actually you are really expert at what you do and therefore you don't need to do anything differently. It's about accepting that context and helping somebody to understand that context. 
I was trying to say to them, you have the skills. And I could see it. We were on a Zoom call and I could see them kind of going, yeah, I kind of guess we do. You know, it's not about forgetting those fundamental processes that, that take place in those kind of relationships. It's just that the circumstances of the loss need to be considered. It's about dealing with and helping somebody to, I suppose, work through and process that experience. And if you take the COVID example, you know, it's a, having to be preoccupied with not being there at the time, how are we going to manage the, the ceremonies and the rituals and the funeral, and also what having to deal with all the practicalities of the loss, because they're not able to make sense of things at the time. They kind of open up the imaginary bag that we all have, pile it all in, zip it up and off we go. And over time, we unpack and we repack and we unpack and we repack. That's when, I suppose, if somebody goes along for counselling or for some therapeutic help, is that's the process that's happening. The person's being helped to unpack and repack. And eventually you kind of have to get rid of things like guilt and anger and fear. But there's certain things you have to keep. We can't get rid of the experience of the event. You know, that's a process. And sometimes that process, or not sometimes, but often that process is painful. And I would just liken it to, I suppose, emotional physiotherapy. So, you know, when you break a limb, you know, it's immobilized, but then you have to go through a process of recovery. Does that mean that in the early days, again, I'm thinking COVID, but I'm also thinking of your experience in um, some of these extraordinary circumstances like terror attacks and so forth. A lot of people use the word closure, don't they, when it comes to grieving, when it comes to uh, moving on, another phrase that's used. You mentioned guilt as well. I guess there is something of a survivor guilt when, when you're wrenched away from someone and you sort of don't feel you've had that closure of a funeral as you would have expected it and the ability perhaps to say goodbye as you would have wanted to, not, not through a, an iPad or in some other artificial means. Do you get that sort of closure element that, that it, it's a lot harder because people probably don't even want to start the process until they've, at least to a certain extent, got their head around what's happened, do they? No, I, 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 like you, I've never understood what the closure is because, you know, does the closure mean that you don't think about the person or whatever? For me, I always see it as coming to terms with that loss. And if somebody said to me, what do you mean by coming to terms with it? I would say you're able to talk about it. You're able to think about it. You're able to revisit reminders, you know, whatever those reminders are. There's still going to be that element of pain and the element of sadness. Hopefully the, the guilt might be significantly less. You know, parents who've, you know, when a, a child has died, and I'm, I'm not talking about necessarily a young child, but, you know, even teenagers or whatever, who say, you know, I should have, it's the, the, the what ifs, you know, I've often tried to help people to understand, say there's often no what ifs, there's only a what is, because the what ifs, a patient once said this to me, so the what ifs are the route to hell. And it really struck me. So in that process of repacking and unpacking, if you like, you can minimise the guilt, if you like. So people will still get twinges of it and still feel it. I don't know if I've ever felt comfortable with the idea of closure. I'm going to ask you a, a question based on the word trauma, actually, because we, we all trot it out. I certainly do. Oh, I've had a traumatic experience. Everyone says it, don't they? Whether, whether that's strictly true or not. Do you class what's happened with the COVID pandemic as a sort of collective traumatic experience? Is it, is it a trauma, so to speak? I would guess it is. I think you only have to look at the faces of the frontline staff, people who are bereaved, people who've had a loss as a result of this, people who are struggling because of the economic impact of this. And to lose your job is traumatic. And it's not traumatic in the sense of the diagnostic label of post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. But this has a significant impact, which will really disorientate people in terms of their own mental health and their their journey through this this experience for example we we know that employment is good for mental health and if you don't have it and it's you know people have either lost their job or their income or their earnings they have to struggle in in all sorts of ways people in challenges of schooling kids at home and people worrying about 
you know, I know people with children with special needs, for example, who have struggled throughout of this. So I think if we use trauma in, in the general sense, because I think for me, it's all about the meaning of the experience. You know, what does this mean for you at this particular time? So trauma often in terms of how we perceive it is about the meaning of the event, you know, because it will mean different things to different people. I'll tell you what, I've got a final question, actually. It's very fascinating. But I'm thinking, to go back to your really visual analogy, actually, of before, if I see that person, or if we see see a person who has a blindfold, has been literally chucked out the back of a van into the pouring rain, and, and we're the one that come across them, how do we help them, do you think? Is there is there a sort of toolkit or a sort of three things you can do to, to help someone who is suddenly bereft in that way? I would say, first of all, you need to take off the blindfold. And I think be realistic with people about the challenges that has come. I'm a really firm believer in being very, very honest with people and the people that we see that come to our service, about what we can and what we can't do. Uh, so having, you know, take off the blindfold, talk about some of the realities and the challenges, but then actually be there with them through the realities and challenges that they have to face. And it's that idea of being that experienced guide, staying with somebody and seeing them through those early challenges and, and kind of highlighting things that are going to be ahead. So take off the blindfold, be realistic about it, and some direction, some direction, show them what the map is like what the landscape is like and help them to walk through that but in a very structured way rather than you know so i'm very active if it means writing to the school or the employer to say look i think that this person actually needs a little you know, more time off or they need special measures to return to their workplace for example then i will do that so i think to have be much more active in terms of our guiding if you like in that respect and that may not sit comfortably with a lot of people who, who work therapeutically. But it depends, you know, it depends upon your model, for example, and what, and what you believe. But I think, I think particularly with with loss and grief, and this sudden loss, I think for me that's really important. And then I, I always say finally, and then say finally, finally. It's a very annoying character trait of mine. I apologise. As a big question, who cares for the carers? Because, you know, you mentioned yourself some of the staff that have obviously looked worn out and exhausted and their face masks have burnt into their faces because they've been wearing them so long and bruising and the general, you know, shaking at the end of a shift and knowing you've got to go back in the next day or, or on your next shift. Who cares for the carers? I'll try and keep this one brief because <laughs> um, I think we don't do enough caring for carers. I think there's a lot of talk about it. Over the last few months, I've seen a plethora of guidance about coming out from the health community, the mental health community, about what everybody should be doing and ought to be doing. And I appreciate that we're kind of playing catch up in some degree. But I think that it's kind of woken people up to the fact that actually people need to have something in place to care for people or to support people doing extremely difficult jobs. I think they've had the volume that they've had they've never had to deal with as a rule. I think if you look at the police force, for example, and, and the fire service, not consistent, but often they've had post-incident support for people who've done those emergency service roles. And certainly they've introduced peer support roles and say um, the ambulance service have just been over in Northern Ireland uh, doing that last year. And some mental health trusts will have it, some general hospitals may have it, but it's not universal. I think these things need to be put in place and we need to pay more than lip service to them. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating, Stephen. Thank you very much. And, and I have to say, I, I keep going back to that visual analogy that you gave. I think we probably all need to work on how we help people that are blindfolded in the pouring rain and have just found themselves, you know, sitting up, up on the tarmac wondering what on earth's going on. So we'll all try and don the cagoule and help out. But thank you ever so much for your time and for all you do. And um, it's most fascinating, I must say. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. To let us know what you think, follow us on Twitter, 
Instagram and Facebook using at Art of Dying Well. Or you can check out our website, artofdyingwell.org. Yes, so visit the site, packed with helpful info, and do follow us across our social channels. Many thanks, of course, to Stephen Ragel. Vital work he's doing there uh, alongside his team up in Nottingham and also quite a long way beyond. OK, well, it's that time in the programme when we engage in a little death chatter. This, as I mentioned before, is a conversation with Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg. What we wanted to do was to get the lowdown on how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected his Jewish community in North London. Death chatter. It's just a chat about death. Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, Senior Rabbi of the New North London Synagogue. Thanks ever so much for joining us. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. And thank you for having me and including me. Not at all. Well, look, these are really challenging times. Just thinking about the Jewish community, of course, very close, very family orientated. How has the community dealt with this shielding, the self-isolation, maybe grandmothers, grandfathers at the window, not being able to hug that sort of personal connection? Have you found that to, to be an issue? It definitely is an issue. And we're very we're, we're very cross-generational community. Grandparents and grandchildren often very close. And we our, our prayer gatherings are not solitary prayer, but in community. Our quorum is traditionally made up of 10. And uh, the, the, the services in our synagogue also have a very strong social and identity component. And of course, all this has been lacking and people have been very keen to abide by standards of safety, looking after one's health and the health of other people and one's societies, paramount in Jewish tradition. So all this has been missing and it's been a major factor not present in people's lives. And how people have responded has been very, very varied. Some people went into self-isolation very early on, have seen their grandchildren only by waving through the window on balconies, and are delighted now at least to be able to meet in, in, in gardens. But I know that that's, that's not been easy and that's hurt. Um, I also, we're also very aware we've tried to create structures to contact everybody over a certain age and then everybody we know who's living alone. And very interestingly, there's been quite a lot of emphasis on loneliness and isolation, but it's also made me aware that in large social gatherings, there can be a different type of loneliness. One is much less now of the type of loneliness in which everybody else seems to have lots in common and everybody has lots of friends and one sort of lingering by the wall with hundreds of people milling around as if they all have, know everybody and you know nobody. There's that, that isn't, but what we don't know is what people are holding in their hearts when we haven't reached can't reach, don't use devices and are not comfortable with them, or, or or feel anxious to share. And that's a worry. And as a rabbi in, in your community in North London, have you experienced the situation where people are sort of really struggling to cope with the fact that mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, family members that, that are sick and therefore they can't be close to them at that time? Yes, particularly in the early stages of lockdown, the death rate in the Jewish community was very high. We're not quite sure why that was. It may be that we'd had a lot of social gatherings, you know, very close until the late decision by the British government to lock down. It may be that Jews tend to travel, they have family abroad. So we lost a number of members, some to COVID some not to COVID, but those who were ill in hospital on ventilators, the family could not go and see them or were told that they could come exceptionally, but it was a high risk and they felt this isn't what my father would have wanted. This is not what my mother would have wanted. People have died far more alone. You couldn't hold somebody's hand. Sometimes there have been wonderful nurses or doctors who said we'll hold the phone to the person's ear and, and you can speak, but it's not the same by any means. And people have felt Worried about the loneliness and then bad that they couldn't be with the person they love most at that crucial moment of final farewell. And then funerals have been very different. We've been allowed to hold funerals, but with very, you know, the, 
only the very closest relatives. And something I've seen is brothers and sisters who are isolating separately with their partners or alone, unable to hug each other, unable to be close to the coffin to protect also the cemetery staff. So that's been very intense and added a different level of sadness. And then in the morning period, the Jewish community would gather traditionally for the Shiva, the seven days of mourning, when many, many people would come to the, the bereaved family's home to speak and to gather, sometimes in tens or even hundreds at times of prayer. And those visits have been impossible. And the prayers have taken place on Zoom, which, of course, is far more remote and yet less impersonal somehow than one would have expected. But at the same time, very obvious limitations. And then it's harder just simply to keep in touch. Yeah. And mentioning Shiva, I mean, I think obviously there's there's some religious ignorance across all our communities, really. But sometimes you don't think about these sort of recovery processes. I'm sure having people around you, supporting you, it's all part of giving somebody a good send off, of course, and sending them to God, but also recovering yourself, the grief process. Is that something that's been seriously impacted, do you think, by this separation? Yes. Exactly how, where people are with their grieving may only become really apparent over more time. But there are a number of impacts. The fact that family can't come together, can't share memories. And there is something of, I think, a very interesting question, what screens convey and what they don't convey. Obviously, you can't do touch. The signs that you pick up by being there with your body, the the intuitions, that, that, that closeness of just understanding each other, the ability to sit in the same space and look at albums of pictures, look at something on the mantelpiece and say, you know, dad loved that. This isn't happening. One is part of this whole process of lockdown and the stresses and griefs of our society at large and where that has carried individuals, I don't know. I think for some, there will be an anger that had the government acted more quickly, had there been better PPE. This is certainly true of significant parts of the, the wider community. People maybe need not have died, had warnings been heeded, maybe a level of anger, sometimes justified anger, which will make it hard for people to grieve. How that emerges in the future I think is still unknown and then just thinking about the challenges as the lockdown eases and we look to the future uh, this is a huge question really to ask what is the the new normal for the Jewish community but I, I was thinking about what you said off mic about the virtual world and particularly on the Sabbath you know the connection and and again the point you made about screens what they can give you what they can't give you but there are times of course in the Jewish community where you can't use those screens either can you? No and um, the traditional community will follow Jewish law in not using screens on the Sabbath or on festivals but that's a huge challenge and that that whole gathering of the Sabbath and we're looking now towards the high holidays in, in September and every sector of the community is looking with some anxiety what will we do? It's the most important spiritual time in the Jewish year. So that's a big change and a big loss. And it will take time for that to reemerge because I think that, you know, we're looking to July the 4th now for possibly some, you know, synagogues to be able to, to reopen in any significant way. Gatherings will be limited. Singing intrinsic to services carries particular dangers. People who still have to isolate, who are vulnerable, There'll be many people who feel anxious about gatherings because we've become used not only to, as it were, being behind physical walls, but being emotionally in quite sort of enclosed spaces. That's one aspect. Another aspect, I have to say, is gain. In a lot of online classes, people pop up from all over the world. You know, a close friend of mine in Italy has joined one of my weekly classes. And I think many people will decide that when we meet in person again, we'll have a screen on so that we can include all kind of people who can join us virtually but could never get there. Although our prayers in the House of Mourning will be in person, I think again we'll be connecting up with 
family in Israel and around the world and elsewhere. So there are also been things that we've learned are possible. And although they were possible before lockdown on Zoom, not many of us realised the potential of such tools. Just looking to the future again, is this something that sort of future planning, that recovery from from what isn't just a local trauma, it's a national and, a, and an international global trauma, particularly as you've talked about, you know, the travelling community and how linked up it is around the world. Is there planning on a local level to sort of look to, to the recovery, the movement, the getting together again, if we can't, what we do instead? Is that underway at the moment? It's absolutely underway, particularly, as I said, with regard to the high holidays across, I think, every branch of the Jewish community. We're trying to do the best. To, you know, The most likely scenario seems to be that we'll be able to have gatherings, but of limited size and with careful spacing and with obvious hygiene requirements. And we take close medical advice. But we're also looking at what we'll do if that isn't possible or if the return to normal, on the other hand, is quicker than we thought. So absolutely. There's a dimension of this also, but I, which we haven't talked about yet. And this is very much an interfaith dimension, which is the new normal is a new normal for our society. There's some very important things which I would be sorry to lose as we come out of lockdown. I don't think any of these are specific to our particular faiths or maybe to faith itself. But people have often noticed that they've seen and noted the natural world more They've realised that one doesn't have to rush from place to place in the same way, that they're things we've treated as must-haves that we actually don't need. And early on in lockdown, there was a survey which suggested that over 90% of people, or almost 90% of people, didn't want to return to how it was before. And there's also been a greater aware of social injustice, particularly now with Black Lives Matter, but before that as well the BAME community suffering much greater illness and mortality than others and the re-evaluation of roles like who's driving the buses, who's putting food on the shelves, who's collecting our rubbish and less taking for granted and much more awareness of neighbourhood. Lots of streets like ours, we've got a WhatsApp group, we're in communication with each other in ways that we weren't. The clapping on the Thursdays at eight, people out to their doors and you know, lots of people didn't actually know their neighbours. Loads of volunteering. I've not lived through anything like that in our society. I hope our new normal is a more communal, more local, more compassionate new normal and much, much, much more aware of the environment emergency. Yeah, very well said. Very good point as well, actually. And, and we certainly are all in it together. That's that's a very good point. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. Thank um, you for including me. I, I feel I've learned a lot, actually. No, and it's a nice bit of recalibration now, thinking about, you know, I quite often ask questions in the negative. What are we going to do about X, Y and Z? The sadness of this and the pain of that. But actually, you're right. There are things we, we in our new normal that we need to retain, that we need to celebrate. And perhaps all being in it together, perhaps less of an ignorance about one another, which I think is a point that, that can be made in these times. We're, we're spending more time to get to know each other, people we perhaps live on next door to or in a flat above or below or alongside. So I think we need to retain those things. And I thank you very much for, for pointing that out. And hopefully we, we can be more together and more supportive through life, death and ongoing. Why not subscribe to the Art of Dying Well podcast? Just search for The Art of Dying Well on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn. Yes, do please do that if you haven't, of course, subscribed already. Maybe you're a first-time listener. Or please do recommend the Art of Dying Well podcast to a friend. That would be uh, excellent. More the merrier. Okay, now for our final slot, we're going to segue from Judaism to Christianity for the voice from the chaplain's chair. Now, it's a fascinating chat with a priest from East London, a genuine East Londoner, no less, who served at the Nightingale Hospital in the Docklands area of the city, perhaps better known as the Excel Centre. So let's find out what it was like on the front line during those really tough early months. The voice from the chaplain's chair. Father James Mackay, parish priest of Our Lady of Walsingham Royal Docks in the East End of London. Now... I guess with COVID-19, which was new for all of us, a shock for all of us, 
accompanying individuals and caring for people has taken on rather a, a different turn, hasn't it? Certainly in hospital. And I know that you helped set up a 24-7 chaplaincy system at the Nightingale Hospital in East London, the Excel Centre to those who, who know the area well. Now, I guess we've had this sort of convention, haven't we, of having quite a few Victorian buildings that have a certain character, you sort of know where you're at. But this is a lot more on an industrial scale. So let's begin, perhaps, by just asking your first impressions of the Nightingale and how you felt about caring for people in that context. I've been to the Excel many times, obviously, it's on my doorstep. But uh, when I walked in it for the first time, having got the call from the bishop to go in, it felt eerie to go in there because it didn't have the the hustle and bustle of uh, people going to shows or whatever is going on in there but everything geared towards one purpose and to go into one of the exhibition rooms which is huge and see the whole thing being turned over into what is effectively a massive set of wards of just rows of beds industrial scale is 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 a good term to use really because that's what it felt like it was empty it was cavernous and there was that sense of foreboding of imminent crisis, but with nothing actually having started off yet. That changes once you, you know, you got a few floors and you meet some of the staff and personnel getting ready. And as it started to fill up with nurses, with volunteers and all sorts of different departments uh, running down the concourse of the Excel, it felt much more, I wouldn't say like a hospital, but uh, like a place of work where everyone shared a common purpose. But that definite initial impression was quite intimidating now i guess if you felt that way it must be and i'm trying to project how, how i would have felt if i was suffering with my breathing anxious worried about what might happen to me and i enter that space unaccompanied which is likely apart from obviously the, the medics doing a f- phenomenal job did the patients that, that could speak to you did they communicate that sort of sense of foreboding and the fact that they did feel kind of isolated from the very start well, this is the thing. Now, I can't be 100% sure, but in my experience was I never met a patient who was uh, conscious. Uh, they were all brought in uh, in a certain state of illness uh, where they were unconscious and intubated. So there were patients who, when they were brought off of the intubation, were put into another section, another part of the ward, so that they wouldn't be uh, exposed and they could recover quietly. And I can only imagine what it was like for them, but I didn't get to interact with those people. There was one moment which I found, uh, I chuckled a bit on my own silliness. One point where I'm, I'm visiting a patient who uh, the family requested uh, anointing. And as I'm finishing, uh, I look over to a patient who's uh, come off uh, the tubes. He looks groggy, a bit bewildered. He's, he's still coming too. And, uh, and I've got a full face mask on, so you can only see my eyes. And I have the mask on and I, and I look towards him and try to give a friendly smile. And uh, he just looks at me like a weirdo because obviously he can't see my mouth. All he's seeing is a guy staring at him for a, a period of time with crunched eyes. And I thought to myself, he's woken up in this place with a ceiling going up you know, however long. He's basically like a factory. What must this be like for him? Having gone unconscious in a hospital, maybe in an intimate space in a ward, and we said goodbye to his family to wake up in this huge building. I can't even begin to imagine it. That said, the family liaison team, which is a team of nurses, basically, which was in constant contact with families and with patients who were able to communicate, were excellent at reassuring everyone, uh, particularly families, uh, that their loved ones were being taken care of, uh, giving them constant updates. And also, and this is only from what I gather, from what I'm told uh, secondhand, but also with those patients who regain consciousness, constantly giving them information and informing them about their family's concern. I mean, it sounds to me that that patient liaison team was quite crucial to the to the chaplaincy mm. effort, was it? Having that link between family members and loved ones who must have been desperate to be at the bedside, but obviously knowing that that was unlikely to be possible. To us, it was excellent. I mean, I would say it was unique because I've, I've visited many hospitals, obviously, in my pastoral ministry. And... Um, that kind of relative to patient sort of like connection, you don't observe it so much. You know, normally you go into a hospital as a priest, family are often by the bedside. So they, the contact has already happened. And then you can be face to face with them and, and give them whatever support they need. But here, that's not possible. There was a big gap because families couldn't be at bedside whenever they wanted or during visiting hours. So the family liaison team's role and their presence was much more uh, frontline, so to speak. 
and I just found them excellent in communicating, in contacting uh, me and and whatever chaplains are in. Uh, we developed a great relationship with them, and and through them, good relationships with the families of people who were on the wards, because particularly this time they needed to know that someone was at the bedside, and that someone was nearly always the priest, or if of another religion, the imam or the rabbi. So family liaison really invested themselves because they could see how important we were as obviously a spiritual presence, but also as, as, as a sign of hope and connection of relationship. We developed an excellent relationship with family liaison. In fact, um, still, still chatting with a couple of them now, you know, on, on various different um, areas of commonality. But I've got nothing but high praise for the family liaison and the nurses, mainly nurses who volunteered in this role. They're constantly updating our families and their contact with us was just excellent. Do you know, I'm very struck by what you said about, obviously, you know, when people are intubated and unconscious and fighting for their for their lives, sadly, versus those that are recovering and need to be, you know, in a slightly different place. How did you cope with that as a priest, but as a human, having the one side where you're looking at people sadly dying and the other side where there's the sort of joy of recovery? It must have that juxtaposition and that that sort of light and dark that must have been very hard to handle for you. Yeah, I mean, the experience on on the ward is one of the most intense partial experiences I've ever had because I'm on the bleep for the local hospital, New University Hospital, and normally I get a call. I go, okay, name, ward, okay, I'll be down there. I go in, I visit the patient, and in and out, you're, you know, you're there 20 minutes max, unless there's a deeper conversation to be had. One visit to the ward on the Nightingale, it could be a three-hour job because you're, you're, see, you're getting the call, you're going in, you're dressing up in all the PPE, then there's a visit itself, and then then exit. And if you've got a family member with you, Add another hour onto that because they have to go through the whole same thing. You meet them beforehand. Uh, you, you sit with them as the family liaison take them through all the procedures, and then afterwards also you have to, you, you're with them as well. And then when you're on there, the main concourse of the ward I was on, it's just unconscious people and and the sound of machines, doctors and nurses all fully masked, almost constantly attentive to each patient because. You know, they really are struggling to keep them alive and to get them best position to give them the best chance. So it is very intense. It's encouraging to see so many people sort of at their job, but at the same time, it feels quite oppressive. And not just that, the face mask that you wear uh, for protection makes it very hard to breathe yourself. So it, it almost creates a certain sympathy. I'm sort of deep breathing through this mask. I'm thinking, gosh, this patient is going through that all the time. And, um, you know, having, I was on, well, I think the longest I was on the ward, you know, in, just on the ward itself was three hours. And I just wanted to rip the mask off. And I think, gosh, there are doctors and nurses here wearing this thing for oh, how many hours? Seven, eight, nine hours at a time, not able to take it off. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually, that must take its toll. You know, I get to the end of a shift with maybe two or three call outs. And so I've been on you know, the ward, you know, a number of times and I'd just be, exhausted and wondering why I'm exhausted at the end of a day and they think well of course it's because it's not just a physical thing that you're going through it's psychological it's emotional all those things rolled into one it did take its toll yeah I'm not surprised but when death is such a reality it does then make me think about those really painful situations such as having to say goodbye to a loved one, maybe on an iPad or Zoom, if, if, if one is conscious enough to talk at that point, or you then communicating to someone who, you know, to a family member or, or a relative or a, or a friend, a, a close person, that, you know, something of this nature is happening and this is goodbye. How difficult is it to do that job on an iPad or through Zoom or, or whatever? Because it seems like you're having to try and make the impersonal relatable and personal. Mm -hmm. Well, I should say that the Nightingale really stood out early on, and I'm only going on what I heard from other hospitals, in that we were able to get relatives close to their loved ones if they were close to death. If their prognosis was bad, then family were contacted and told, and one family member could be at their bedside, and I would accompany them, where I would give the anointing and pray with them. And that was unusual at the time, I think, for other hospitals, and I think they since developed it. So... 
bringing in the the iPad, you know, or the online access uh, wasn't such an emergency because Nightingale just seemed to be very attuned to getting family members on ward when needed. So what would often happen, family groups would come down and they would elect one person, I maybe if it was the wife or whatever, to go in and, and, and represent them. Then later on, we got in iPads and whatnot. And um, I never personally used one, but I know the imams did. And uh, it proved to be very powerful where you know family members could basically, like you'd have um, a device by the bedside and they could talk through it or play some prayers that the, the dying person would be familiar with. It's not the same, like anything over a screen. I think as we're finding now, everyone's loving Zoom when, uh, at the start of lockdown. I think we're all fed up with it. Just, we just want to see people, don't we? But it was the best we could do. And by all accounts, a very moving moment for people to be with their loved one if they so chose. But it was also very distressing, I think, because you know they're not in a state where you can interact with them. They're unconscious and often looking quite worse for wear. So it wasn't unusual for families to decline the Zoom offer and just send one person in, as we offered them, a chance to be with them. Uh, and if the person was able to be aware of, of their loved one's presence to reassure them of that, but also then to report back to the family that that person wasn't alone when they died. And then in that sense, were you ever a part of what comes next, i.e. speaking to those family members that maybe couldn't have been at the bedside? or Because I, I guess there's a trauma in that as well, isn't there? I mean, th- this is a massively, almost nationally, national and global trauma, really. So exactly, did you have yeah. a part to play in sort of helping family members communicate that to other family members and then of course there's the funeral side of things that obviously is very severely restricted i'm sure you've experienced that as a priest as well yeah i've I've celebrated a couple of funerals um in lockdown and and it's 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 the worst it's it's really horrible you know and i'm not a family member i just it's it's not great what would you say is the worst thing about that I i think you know limited numbers is one thing it's not being able to hold the person that the people who are grieving you know like um people who've lost spouses after decades and and your natural inclination is to touch them on the shoulder for family members to hug one another and they're not allowed to do it and then you just go you know there's no reception afterwards you just leave it's not nice at all i know that that there are opportunities to view the funeral service over a screen but if i was being honest that 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 would be i'd probably take up that option like knowing you know what what it's like to be at the funeral and not not be able in close contact with the people who are there you know i feel really sad for, for people who've lost a loved one you know in terms of the funeral during this time i mean on the plus side it is possible to when you're preaching you feel like the the homily is much more important because you're the one who can personalize it as much as possible and speak into what everyone's feeling there because you're feeling it with them the distance the reduced capacity to grieve in a fully human way which involves other people and touch and closeness and intimacy so to be able to speak into that feels like a very important ministry and that goes for um, ministry over the phone for example when you are talking with family members to let them know that someone was close that they were touched you know we were allowed uh, because there was this regulation wasn't there that everything would have to be done with cotton buds when it came to anointing but Frankly, when I said this to the people on the, the nurses and doctors in the wards, they were like, no, go stick a thumb on his head. It's no problem because um, you're wearing gloves anyway. And it was very important to know that the, their loved one was touched, you know, even if they couldn't feel it, that it was important for the family member to know that. So there was a kind of vicariousness to what I was able to do there as well. And to report it back, you know, that during this time, your loved one was not alone and to whatever degree, it was a degree of intimacy in, in the contact. That was very important to families. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, as human beings, perhaps we take uh, the fact that we're relational, the fact that we like to hug mm, and be tactile yeah. on the whole. You know, we certainly need connection and, and long and crave for connection. Do you think possibly there could even be, and I don't want to be dramatic here, but, you know, because we're being forced to sort of face these realities at the moment, certainly more acutely March, April, May, I guess, but nonetheless, do you think there'll be a sort of generational, I don't know, almost like post-traumatic stress situation where, where we're all going to have to try and help each other over this one? I, I really do. I think uh, we'll look back on the pandemic as the opening chapter to a long story, I think. That's my feeling. How we get over this is emotionally and psychologically and spiritually is 
probably more important than how we get through this current pandemic. It's going to have massive effects. It's going to take a long time for us to get over these emotions, which, you know, to use the term, have been have been locked down. They've been allowed to build up. It's going to take real partial sensitivity and care and patience, a capacity to bear people's feelings. It reminds me of something you said um, a month or two back, actually, in one of the interviews you did, uh, when you pointed out quite rightly and poignantly that love is stronger than death and love wins the victory over death. And you also said, which I found very powerful, this is why I was ordained a priest. And mm. it, it kind of makes me think that I, I, do, I certainly take your point about the, the post-pandemic times and how we all need to have a look. But maybe what, what you saw and what you experienced in terms of kindness and, and, in, and particularly in terms of working together, a bit of teamwork, maybe we all need to work together societally to recover from this properly. I do. I think we need to provide space for each other just to be in. One thing that we can all agree is that we're all going through this together. There's, nobody has not been affected. And for those of us who can, to provide space around a person to just allow them to be and to accept as valid whatever feelings come out of it. As a priest, I've been sensing the call to do this more and more, to lead not with uh, direction, but with compassion and with, with open arms. Very well said indeed, Father James. A bit of compassionate solidarity, I reckon, is certainly what we need just now. OK, well, that's just about it. Thank you so much for your company over the last all 50 minutes or so. And a big thank you to our guests, Stephen Ragel, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg and Father James Mackay. I think we can probably all agree that we'll need some sort of help as we emerge into the so-called new normal, albeit spiritual, psychological support, maybe just the ability to reconnect and share what we've all been through. I'd just like to finish by saying that my thoughts and prayers, our thoughts and prayers, here at The Art of Dying Well, are with all of you out there who have suffered, who have lost, and of course who are grieving. Uh, But we do stand with you, and we will carry on having this really important conversation. Do remember we're here to help in any way we can. Just visit the site, get in touch with us. We'll do whatever we can to, to be supportive at this time. And until next time, stay safe, stay connected and take care.